All right, Alexander, let's do an update on Ukraine. And the big story is the spring offensive, the, uh, the fighting in Bakhmut, Navdievka. But uh, I think the spring offensive is, is the big story, or at least the talk about a spring offensive. Uh, but before you, you give your, your, uh, your take on what's going on on the ground and then your, your thoughts on the spring offensive. Uh, Reznikov, the, U, the Ukraine Minister of Defense, he was in Bulgaria. He was in Greece yesterday. He's, he's going to be in Cyprus now, and he's just basically going around looking for ammunition. And he has gotten some ammunition, but he was also looking for some heavier uh, weapons. Uh, from Greece, for example, he was looking for the S-300s. And the Greeks said, we can't give you the S-300s because of the situation we have with, with Turkey. And that was the, the excuse that they used. But he did get ammunition. He got uh, stingers and some other stuff. And now in Cyprus, he's going to ask for the same thing. I mean, to open up the discussion, my question to you is, is this normal? I mean, I mean we're going to get a spring offensive. Just, we're going to get a spring offensive in two, three weeks, according to what Blinken said yesterday. Blinken said in two weeks, two weeks, we're going to have a spring offensive. And Reznikov, the Ukraine defense minister, is in Greece, a country of, of about 10 million in population. Uh, a powerful military, but not, you know, not a, not a huge military, but a powerful military, a good military for a country of its size. And then he comes to Cyprus, a country of 800,000, asking for ammunition and, and weapons for a spring offensive that's happening in two weeks. Is this, does this make any sense to you whatsoever? It makes absolutely no sense at all. I mean, I think it's nuts. It suggests that Ukraine is far from ready for any kind of spring offensive or any kind of offensive, that they're going around hat in hand, begging everybody now, even the smaller European countries, for ammunition, that they haven't sorted out their supply lines, that they're nowhere near ready to launch any kind of offensive. And, of course, the Russians can see that. Everybody can see that. We've been talking many times in many programs we've discussed it with Brian Belletic um, on the on the Duran um, the fact that the West hasn't supplied Ukraine with the level of ammunition that it would sustainably need to carry out an offensive it hasn't provided Ukraine with enough tanks without in infantry fighting vehicles and all of those things and yet Ukraine is still going to go ahead with this offensive but Reznikov is going around all over Europe, he's going to Bulgaria, another country, was it 8 million, 7.5 million now, uh, uh, trying to get ammunition there. He's going to Greece, trying to get ammunition. He's, trying, he's going to Cyprus. The Germans have said, we haven't got any more to give. The French have said, we haven't got any more to give. The mighty United States has come up with a, a certain amount, but nowhere near enough. There's disagreements amongst the Europeans about how they're going to pay for new ammunition production. But even if and when that gets started, that's not going to be ready for, you know, for several years. So the whole thing is just, I mean, the whole thing is, it has a squalid look about it. I mean, this isn't the kind of behaviour you would expect a um, defence minister to be engaging in on the eve of an offensive an already announced and declared offensive if they are reduced to this sort of thing 
the right thing to do is to call it off. <laughs> to, you know, to, to, to call off this whole idea of an offensive, go back to the drawing board, think about what you can do with the forces that you have, whether you can hold out much longer or, you know, whether you need to retreat to some places. You certainly would, shouldn't be looking at an offensive in this kind of way. Blinken, Blinken said two weeks we're going to get the offensive, and he seemed very confident that Ukraine is going to take Crimea. That's, that's how he sees He's like, you know, when we take Crimea, uh, we'll leave it up to, up to Olensky what he wants to do, because Ukraine is a democracy, and so we'll leave it up to him. What is what is going on here? Yeah, I mean, is it, what what are the scenarios that could be happening? This could all be a bluff. Yes. Okay. This could be a, a terrible miscalculation, terrible planning, and you know, it's like you said, the spring offensive turns out to be a disaster. Could this also be a a, a distraction so that they could launch some sort of of an offensive, which they know is is not going to, to work so that they can do something else in the West. I mean, we had the meeting between Alensky and Poland, and I would like your thoughts on that. Uh, are they planning something there? You know, I, b- I believe Foreign Policy uh, magazine actually ran an article late in March talking about how um, the, the unification of Poland, Lithuania, and Ukraine would solve a lot of problems. It would allow Ukraine to enter into NATO. It would create a security buffer. It would counter uh, the Germans and the French. All these, all these things that that Foreign Policy magazine uh, wrote about. I mean, is something going on there? Because I, I can't, I, I can't wrap my head around this this spring offensive strategy. It, yes. it, nothing makes sense. The only the only other other thing that could be going on is is maybe. There's more forces than they're letting on. Maybe the, maybe this is going to be a bigger campaign than we thought. Uh, exactly. Well, there there are a lot of people. How do you explain it? There are a lot of people, especially on the Russian side, who think who think the second, who think the last, that this is all a distraction, that it's all a disinformation exercise, that Ukraine is far better equipped and far better armed and has far more men re- uh, prepared for this offensive than, um, you know, all these reports imply and that this is all intended to put the Russians into a condition of complacency and that the Russians um, are not going to be fooled by it and all that. I have to say I'm sceptical about that theory. I think that, um, first of all, I, I suspect that the Russians have a pretty good idea, actually, of the number of forces that Ukraine actually has at its disposal. So I think a disinformation exercise like this isn't going to work, and I don't think there's any point in it. So I don't think that's what's going on. That's the first thing. The second thing I I would say is about a disinformation exercise. Um, it's This is just too elaborate for that. I mean, it, it, it's, it's been conducted on too squalid a scale to be just a disinformation exercise. Would you really be going to Cyprus and asking for shells as part of a disinformation exercise? I mean, wouldn't you do it some other way? Wouldn't you have public encounters between the Americans and the Ukrainians and things of that kind? I mean, it seems, it just doesn't feel right to me in in those terms. My own take on this is actually very simple. I, I think that you have a group of people in Washington, the neocons, the president 
Um, and people like Lloyd Austin, who, as we've discussed, is a very political general. They've been gambling uh, right through this crisis ever since it started. They're still gambling. They've ordered Ukraine to carry out this offensive. And Ukraine, some people in Ukraine perhaps are not very keen on this idea, but they have to do it because he who pays the piper calls the tune. They have to launch this offensive. And, of course, the hardliners insist on it. So they're going to launch this offensive in two or three weeks' time. This is now a political imperative. The future of the administration and of its grand strategy and its grand plan depends on it. And they're not going to be talked out of it. I think that... There's an accumulation of facts which suggest that this is not a good idea at all. But the people in the White House are simply paying no attention, that they just don't want to hear about any of this. And I think there's any great grand plans. I don't think there's grand plans to launch offensives in multiple directions, as some people are saying. I don't think Ukraine has the force any longer to launch offensives in multiple directions. So I, I, I think that that's really what it's about. It's, it's all about politics in Washington. You launch this offensive, the assumption is it's going to be successful. You've provided Ukraine with infantry fighting vehicles. You've provided Ukraine with a certain amount of training. You have this entrenched contempt for the Russians. You assume this is going to work because, according to your ideological set of beliefs, it must. And I think that's all there is to it myself. I mean, I don't think it's more complicated than that. Now, that's my own guess. But, of course, you know, others are entitled to their own view and we'll see what comes. Who, who is they? Who is they? Lloyd Austin. Austin. Uh, who, I mean, we could we could say the the usual suspects: Sullivan, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Austin, Newland, Blinken. Is is there any more people oh, in yeah. the they that that you think oh, are yeah. pushing for this offensive? And and who do you think? What groups do you think are telling them, if any, that uh, this is a bad idea? And also, pull in the Europeans as well. Yes. Which camp? Yeah. They fall into. I would imagine that the Polish authorities are also part of the Austin Sullivan. They that's the way it looks. Absolutely, like to me. The, 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 Since Poland is is very keen on. They on on this, the, as, uh, it, as are the Baltic states. As obviously. are the Baltic states as as are countries like Denmark and of course Britain, which has also provided some amount of help there. As are you know people like Baerbock and Habeck in Germany. The Habeck has just been to Kiev and has apparently told the Ukrainians. No more weapons. Germany's run out. <laughs> so there are there are uh, Ursula and all her lot. No doubt all of those people, Stoltenberg, they all want this offensive to happen because, as I said, ideologically, it's 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 essential. And of course, the other thing to bear in mind and, you know, there's been a very interesting cache of NATO documents that's just been published. I haven't had time and opportunity to study them properly, but I, I and, you know, there's claims that these documents are real and some that they're not and whatever. But I suspect these people are getting an awful lot of false information. They probably think that the situation on the battlefronts is much more favourable to Ukraine than it really is, that the Russians are much weaker than they actually are. And I think that 
they probably do think, you know, all it needs is one more heave and it will work. Um, and, and, you know, because they can't really see otherwise as to who is arguing against it. The answer is some people within the uniformed military in the United States. We see people like Millie. Millie is a, I have to say, in my opinion, a, a, a shabby figure. <laughs> because on the one hand, he goes along all the time with every demand that the White House and Lloyd Austin are making. And then as soon as he's done that, he goes off and gives an interview in which he says, well, I don't actually think they'll be able to regain all their territory or retake Crimea or do any, any of these things. So I think the uniformed military, the people who are advising the Joint Chiefs of Staff, are saying this isn't going to work. Millie knows it. But at the same time, he doesn't, he can't, doesn't have the courage, the political courage, to stand up to the president and to the people around him. And I think this is really what's going on. Yeah, I saw that leak. Uh, I've read the New York Times article yeah. uh, based on that leak. I, I think you're exactly right, <laughs> even though you, you haven't like gone into it in detail. To me, it seems like if if that leak is to be trusted, yes. and maybe it's it's real, it seems like the, the U.S. military is get, getting a much more favorable uh, view of things than, than what the reality is yes. on the ground, favorable yes. in terms of, of uh, for Ukraine. Uh, if... If it's not to be um, believed, it's it, it, if it's a psyop. Well, then that also leads me to believe that that once again you're looking at some sort of of misinformation campaign or or distraction to to present a picture that that is not accurate. But I, I can't I can't figure out why they would you know what's the purpose of of putting these documents out there in order to to influence who. Yes. So, so I mean, I, I mean, I, I believe the leak, but yes. I don't, but I think the numbers that the leak uh, has in there seem very, um, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. It seems no. like there's, there's some sort of misinformation from what the Pentagon is giving Ukraine and what Ukraine is reporting back to, to the Pentagon. Well, exactly. Well, this is one of the most interesting facts because of course <laughs> there's also reports in the, British media that the figures, the same figures that you are saying, you know, don't give accurate information. They also say that the figures don't give an accurate information because they're bad for Ukraine. <laughs> so the, the, the documents have been distorted by the Russians. I mean, all sorts of crazy things are going around on around this. But I think it's been well established and for a long time that most of the information Washington is getting about the state on the battlefronts comes from the Ukrainian general staff. And I think that the Ukrainian general staff is putting an over-optimistic spin, that's putting it mildly, on the overall situation. And I think that's being conveyed to the US, and that's basically what we're seeing. So as I said, they're getting a false picture of the actual situation. I mean, what I believe to be a false picture of the actual situation. And I think this is one of the reasons why there's this false optimism going on. Going on. Why, why did Zelensky uh, go to Poland? Yeah. What do you think the reasoning for that was? Well, this is actually a, a, a good question because the Poles have taken this extremely aggressive pro-Ukrainian position 
the Polish government, I should say, one which is starting to meet increasing amount of opposition within Poland itself. By the way, there have been protests about Zelensky's visit. There have been comments about the luxurious conditions that he's travelled in, he's trained and all that kind of thing. So there's been some pushback amongst people in Poland. But I do think that the, there is a view within the Polish government that this is our opportunity to re-establish the Polish Commonwealth. There's this huge country that used to dominate Eastern Europe back in the 17th century, a long, long time ago. And, you know, this idea of union with Ukraine, a way of getting Ukraine into NATO by the back door. That this, I think this is generally being, generally being floated by some people. And I suspect Zelensky was partly in Poland for that reason. I think that it is not a coincidence that that article in Foreign Policy came out exactly timed with this. But, of course, there's going to be enormous opposition. There's going to be opposition within Poland. There's probably going to be quite a lot of opposition within Ukraine. And we've already seen that um, some NATO countries, including, by some reports, the United States itself, don't want Ukraine in NATO at this time because they don't want to be dragged into a war with Russia. So, again, you get the sense that there's one group of people pushing in one direction and another group of people within the West pushing in a completely different one, that there's no real agreement about how to move forward. Yeah. Uh, before I ask you to comment on the situation in Bakhmut and Sabdivka, just real quickly what's going on on the, on the ground in Ukraine, what, what do you make of the White House's explanation for what went wrong in Afghanistan and does that might does that hint to how the White House may also do the same thing if things go bad in Ukraine because Biden White House pretty much said that what happened in Afghanistan was Trump's fault and you know we're all good here yeah we did everything right to me I, I look at that and I say okay that's probably how the White House will explain Ukraine I'm not saying they're going to blame it on Trump but they'll figure out yes someone or something to blame it on if things go the way of Afghanistan and Ukraine. That's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to blame someone else. <laughs> it's always there. there. So Trump was to blame for Afghanistan. Who knows? You know, you can find all kinds of people who are to blame for what's going to go on in Ukraine. It's either the Chinese or the Germans, or the Germans in particular, I suspect, will be <laughs> blamed quite a lot. The Germans have got themselves into an absolute right awful mess over this one, in my opinion. But anyway, that's another story. But they will look for someone to blame. They will say that the Europeans uh, didn't give enough support. The previous administration, the Trump administration, didn't give enough support. They might even, who knows, it might be a dangerous thing to do, actually say that Obama also didn't do enough to support Ukraine because he wouldn't let U.S. weapons go to Ukraine. And, of course, the prime, prime blame will go onto the Republicans because the Republicans are going to cut off the funding. And it's the fact that the Republicans are not going to allow open-ended support for Ukraine, that there's growing opposition to providing support for Ukraine this will be the stab in the back that uh, has brought about the failure in Ukraine. 
if it had all been left to Jake Sullivan and Victoria Newland, Vicky Newland and Robert Kagan, you know, lurking in the background, giving all that, all the advice that he's giving to his wife and to all the others. Well, it would all have turned out right. That's what they said, remember, not just about Afghanistan. They said it about Iraq, too. You know, that Iraq, it would have, it would have been fine if we'd done, if we'd done more. <laughs> Always, as far as these people are concerned, it's the failure to do more that is the reason for failure, not the fact that they did too much. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Bakhmut. Bakhmut. Well, uh, I mean, it's going bad. But oh, uh, it's going very. What are the details? It's going very bad. Well, I mean, you know, one can get into the huge numbers of details, but to get a sense of how bad it is, uh, even the British Ministry of Defence today issued a bulletin admitting that it is going very bad in 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 Bakhmut. So uh, the Russians. The Wagner organization now has central Bakhmut under their control. They're pushing hard into the West. They're taking places block by block. Um, the British Ministry of Defense has now acknowledged that the roads into Bakhmut are almost unusable by Ukraine. And it, it really does look as if you know, Ukraine is now hanging on by its fingernails to the small part of Bakhmut that it still controls. I've been told, I read somewhere, that the perimeter of the area in and around Bakhmut, still controlled by Ukraine, has now shrunk to five kilometres, you know, the, the sort of distance of the perimeter itself. And that means that the Russians can shell any part, any point within it. Ukraine is now desperately weak, it seems to me, um, um, where it is. And I think, you know, assuming that, you know, we don't have any dramatic changes, um, it's going to be over very soon. I mean, Blinken is talking about an offensive in two weeks' time. I would have thought that by two weeks, Bakhmut will be finished, actually. All right, uh, let's let's end it there. Real quick, uh, do you believe what Prigozhin said the other day that uh, the Russian military decided not to close uh, the, the Pitzer in Bakhmut, to close the cauldron shut so that they could allow Ukraine military to, to enter? Do, do you believe that? Yes. That statement from Prigozhin? Yes, I do, actually. I think, I think he's absolutely right. I think there was a reason for that. I think that the Russians calculated that if they did encircle those Ukrainian troops in Bakhmut, it would have prolonged the battle by weeks, probably, and it would have been very, very costly. Ukraine has suffered huge losses in Bakhmut already. From a Russian point of view, it now makes more sense to just capture the place and end the battle. I think there was a lot of discussion about this. I think Prigozhin himself would clearly have preferred to close the pincers. That's my own sense about this. But I think the decision was made that it made more sense to let the Ukrainians leave. Remember, when they do leave, they'll have to pass the crossfire of the Russian shells. So quite a lot of them will be killed. Most of their heavy equipment will be lost. Um, tens of thousands have already died. Um, from a Russian point of view, Bakhmut, this battle has served its purpose. They might as well capture it and move on to their next objective which will be Avdeyevka, by the way, where, where there are reports that they're now in the process of capturing uh, another village called Pelvomyska, 
which will bring you closer towards encircling um, Avdeyevka. Um, Putin had a meeting with Pushilin, who is the head of the Donetsk regional government. And again, Pushilin is pushing very hard for Avdeyevka to be taken so that the shelling of Donetsk ends. And it's important to stress, this is for the Russians at the moment in time, present moment in time. It is their major strategic political priority. They have to end the shelling of Donetsk city. That was what the war was all about. And, and, and that's what they have to give the most attention to, even if you could argue that from a strategic, tactical, purely military point of view, it might be wiser to concentrate on other things. I thought that in August when they captured a village called Pesky and decided to focus on Pesky rather than Bakhmut, for example. But politics and war, you know, are in, always entangled. The reality is the Russians can't just allow Donetsk to be shelled indefinitely. So they're going to sort out Bakhmut, sort out Avdeyevka, sort out a place called Seversk to the north of Bakhmut, and they want to take Bakhmut now. So that this all that this whole thing is wrapped up as soon as possible, ideally before the Ukrainian offensive starts. Yeah, I was going to say that. Then they have to deal with a, a big Ukrainian spring offensive, yes. which, according to the U.S. State Department, will will end up right on the borders of Crimea. That's right. Yes. We'll see. The, the We are on Rumble, Rockfin, Odyssey, Bitch, Shoot. And Telegram and go to Durant Shop, 10% off. Use the code good day. Take care.